Well, I don't know about you, but I'm glad I came today. I'm glad for our church family. I'm glad that in the midst of all the craziness of these times, Christ Community Church has felt for me and for my family like a haven of normalcy and a place where we can continue to center our heart's affections and our minds and our thinking and our living on our worthy God. Man. I heard a story about a pastor who invited the children to come forward for a brief children's sermon in the middle of the worship service. I have done that from time to time, but you know, it's always a bit risky. You never know exactly what you're going to get. He sure didn't. He, he started his talk with the kids with what he thought was a softball question. He said, boys and girls, what do you have to do to go to heaven? Crickets. <laughs> no answer. Oh, come on, you know. What do you have to do to go to heaven? And after another period of silence, finally one little boy said, well, you've got to be dead. <laughs> Which was not the answer that he was looking for. Jesus answers a related question in today's text. Nobody asks it right out, but... The question is implied. It's, it's there in the air. What do you have to do to enter the kingdom of God? What kind of person gets to enter the kingdom of God? How good do you have to be? What does that goodness look like? How good is good enough? How good do you have to be to enter the kingdom of God? And the answer that Jesus gives is... And honestly, I'm not sure exactly what the best adjective is here because different listeners will respond differently to the answer that Jesus gives. Um, his answer is enlightening, troubling, sobering, shocking, staggering, actually. When you grasp Jesus' answer to the question, how good is good enough? How good do you have to be to enter the kingdom of God? You might prefer that little boy's answer in the children's sermon. Will you open your Bibles once again to the Sermon on the Mount and the text that Drew led us in reading a few minutes ago, Matthew chapter 5. And although the whole chapter is relevant and we will get to it in the weeks to come, we're going to focus just on one paragraph this morning, verses 17 through 20. So I begin rereading at Matthew 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament, the Bible Jesus read. And Jesus often taught with such refreshing new insight and perspective and with such amazing natural authority that evidently some in his generation thought that he had come to do away with the whole Old Testament and start a new religion. To abolish the law and the prophets and start over. Where most rabbis of his era would quote other rabbis who quoted other rabbis who quoted prior rabbis to 
build authority for what they taught, Jesus simply said, I say to you, and presumed to tell us what God thinks, what God is like, what heaven is like, what hell is like, and what you have to do, how good you have to be to enter the kingdom of God. Just with incredible authority. And so some people thought that he was doing away with the old covenant, the law and the prophets, and starting something new. Far from it. He says, no, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And right now I'm going to give you four sermons in two minutes. Not the main sermon of the day, answering that question, how good is good enough, but I want to reflect a little bit with you on what it means when Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Number one, his life and passion were the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophets predicted that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin, of the line of David, that he would be a poor man, physically unimpressive, that he would suffer on behalf of his people, that he would lay down his life for others. All of the career of Jesus fulfilled Old Testament predictions. Number two, he himself lived in perfect obedience to the law. He kept it perfectly. Maybe not always in the way some of his contemporaries thought the law should be observed, but he kept God's law perfectly, and nobody before or since has done that. Number three, his sacrifice on the cross fulfilled the intention of Old Testament sacrifices. God had drummed into his people that he was utterly holy, and nobody should take for granted that unholy, imperfect, frail, failing human beings should have access to a holy God. But instead of exercising the sentence of death on unworthy sinners, God provided, at least in some of the sacrifices, for an animal substitute. So that the severity of death and the seriousness of God's holiness were demonstrated, but that people mercifully and graciously, did not have to suffer the penalty that their sins deserve. Well, this sacrifice system pointed forward to the day when God himself would take on human flesh and himself suffer the penalty for his people's sins. So these are the first three ways in which Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. His career was a fulfillment of predictions. He lived in perfect obedience to the law. His sacrifice fulfilled the intent of the sacrificial system. Number four, this is what he does in the rest of chapter five. Jesus spells out, fills the significance of the law. He brings out its deeper God-intended significance. And if you were attentive as Drew was reading aloud, you heard this refrain or something very like it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I say to you. You've heard, but I tell you. 
It's been said, but I tell you. And you could get the impression that Jesus was saying no to the old covenant, that he was saying, no, I got something different, better than the law. But really what he's doing is drawing out the deeper, fuller, spiritual meaning of the law. So that, for example, in the first instance, God not only forbids murder, he doesn't want people to get unjustly angry, which is the root of murder so on when he goes on to talk about integrity in the area of sex and marriage and speech and love for enemy and so on. He's drawing out the fuller meaning of the law. Now, I don't know if you're tracking with me. This is pointing toward the answer to the question, how good is good enough? Jesus does not make things easier here. If anything, he makes the old covenant law harder. Verse 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. First, I should note that because he only uses the word law here and prophets drops out does not mean that he's only talking about part of the Old Testament now. The way the Bible talks about itself, the Hebrew Bible, uh, sometimes uh, it talks about the law, the prophets, and the writings. Sometimes just the law and the prophets, and sometimes just the law, the Torah, on which everything else in the Old Testament is built. So Jesus is not excluding the prophets here, he's talking still about the Bible of his day, the Bible he read. And he says that this book, this God-breathed book, has enduring authority. Not even the smallest letter or the least stroke of the pen will drop out as long as heaven and earth endure. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Yod, is kind of like our apostrophe in size. There were about 60,000 of them in the Old Testament. I said were, still are. And the least stroke of the pen is just like a little squiggle that turns a capital O into a capital Q. So Jesus is using very strong language here, an illustration to say none of it's going to disappear. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. They're not going to be abolished. Down to the least stroke of the pen, they have enduring authority. And so here is a fifth short sermon in one minute. <laughs> the authority of God's word. The enduring authority of this book. I've told over the years that I've been here my story of having lost my faith in the Bible many years ago. I still considered myself a Christian, but for a while, a few years, I no longer held to the view that the Bible is infallible and without error. I thought that it was a valuable book, a human book, with all of the potential failings of any human writing, that it sometimes was mistaken. And among the things that brought me back to full confidence in the authority of this book was Jesus' view of this book. He never questions it. 
He quotes it as if it settles all debate. He had complete confidence in it. And if I want to call myself a Christian in any meaningful sense of the word, it seems to me I've got to at least share Jesus' view of the Bible. And he has complete confidence in the enduring authority of the word of God. But I'm not going to develop that into a full-length sermon. The main sermon is still coming. How good is good enough? Well, we're getting warmer. Verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. How good is good enough? Well, you've got to keep even the least of God's commands. It would be hard enough if all we had to do was keep the Big Ten, as Benjamin Franklin discovered. You may have heard or read that in his autobiography, he said this, It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. As I knew, or thought I knew, what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other, but soon found the task, quote, of more difficulty than I had imagined, end quote. Well, I'll say... Hard. And how much harder when you realize that the Ten Commandments are fleshed out in the law into 365 prohibitions, 248 positive requirements for a total of 613 commandments. Now, granted, with the passing of time and in different cultures, different circumstances, We may not be required to obey the letter of the law in the literal sense. There are changes over uh, the the centuries now that the people of God are no longer a nation state. and Now that Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law in his own sacrifice and passion. But we are not free to simply dismiss any of it. In my ABF this morning, I used a simple example. The law says if you build a house with a flat roof on it, you've got to put a railing around the roof so that nobody goes up there and falls off and kills himself. Well, even if we don't build flat-roofed houses in snow country, the principle of the law is abiding, is it not? That we have a responsibility to other people to make sure that our property is safe. So even something as simple and apparently minute and unimportant as a parapet around your roof has abiding significance. How good is good enough? You've got to keep them all. And in every era, there have been people who tried to soften this, make it more reasonable, more realistic. Back in the second century the heretic, eventually identified as a heretic, Marcion, 
rewrote the New Testament to eliminate almost every reference to the Old Testament. He thought that the Old Testament God was one deity and that in Jesus we encountered another deity. And so this passage, of course, was erased. But some of his followers even went further and dared to rewrite verse 17 and put this sentence on Jesus' lips. Do not think that I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I have come to abolish them. We wouldn't dare rewrite the Bible, perhaps, but we will look for ways to make it more reasonable. I mean, isn't it enough to be a pretty good person? <laughs> if you think yes, it's, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Surely that's good enough. Well, then I've got a credo for you. You may have heard this before. If you can get going in the morning without caffeine, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring your aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time, if you can overlook when those who you love take it out on you when through no fault of your own something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can conquer tension without medical help or liquor or aid of drugs, if you can say honestly that deep in your heart you have no prejudice against creed, color, religion, or politics, then, my friend, you are almost as good as your dog. <laughs> almost as good as a dog? Is that good enough to get into the kingdom of God? Jesus says anyone who ignores even the least of God's commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, well, they think, I can live with that. I don't have to be great in the kingdom of heaven. If I'm the least, at least I'm in. I'll settle for that. But Jesus is not done. He goes on in verse 20 to say, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just that you'll be the least. You won't get in at all unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, the teachers of the law. They, they were like, kind of like seminary professors, experts in the Bible. And the Pharisees were disciples who took God's word seriously and tried to live it. Back when I was in seminary in Denver, we had the option of taking some of our coursework at the Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Denver. I never was able to take advantage of that, but somebody I know did, and writes about his experience with Rabbi Wagner, an Orthodox rabbi who was his instructor in a couple of courses. Uh, rabbi Wagner was, um, well, he wore thick glasses, a Van Dyke beard, a hat all the time. He had memorized most of the Old Testament and could quote at length from the Talmud, either in Hebrew or English. One night he was lecturing on the 613 laws of Torah and then interrupted and said, 
I believe that when God speaks, I must obey. Nominal Jews and nominal Christians might disagree with me, but I believe that God is a commanding God, and he gives us his laws to live by. I am what you Christians, and most of the class in, in this occasion were guys from the Baptist seminary, I am what you Christians would call a Pharisee, somebody who takes the word of God seriously. Tell me, you Christians, uh, which of God's laws do you obey? Crickets. <laughs> Nobody wanted to answer. And they were sitting there thinking they can't even say the Ten Commandments because at least the Sabbath commandment they didn't keep. They didn't keep any of them as rigorously, probably, as Rabbi Wagner did. But he asked again. He was patient. Uh, how, how do you obey God? And this student decided, well, somebody's got to speak up. So he said, well, I, I guess I would say, um, like Jesus said, that we try to love God and love neighbor. That, that those two sum up the law. And Rabbi Wagner smiled and stroked his beard and said, that reminds me of a story. And um, at least in some cases, when a rabbi says, that reminds me of a story, you're in trouble. Uh, he said, have you heard the story of the centipede with sore feet? <laughs> and none of them had. So he said, well, the centipede had 100 feet, and all of them were sore so that it was very painful to walk. So he went to the wisest creature he knew, the owl, and described his situation. He said, what should I do? And the owl said, very simple. Give your feet a rest. Learn to fly. The centipede thought, that's sounds like a good idea. How do I do that? And Al said, well, I gave you the principle. You have to work out the details. And then the rabbi looked at him and said, that's what sometimes you Christians are like. You think that we state some broad principle and that that's enough. I need it more specific. I need all 613. Do you take God's word that seriously? You take God's word that seriously? And even so, Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So that not only do you not murder, you don't get unjustifiably angry. Not only do you not commit adultery, you don't look lustfully at somebody else. You keep your word even if it costs you. You keep your marriage vows. You love not only those who are lovable, but your enemies who are still people made in the image of God. And ends this chapter by saying, be perfect. Well, I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble. I can well imagine a couple of those first century hearers going home at the end of the day, and as they're walking along, one of them says, did the master say what I thought? I thought I heard him say. And the other one says, you mean that part about our righteousness having to be surpassing that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Yeah, he you heard that too. That's what he said. 
If that's the case, the only way I'll get into the kingdom of God is by the grace of God. Precisely. Yes. Sorry, I know that I'm going to get enthused. Boom. Yes. One of the functions of the law, not the only function of the law, the law is there to show us what God expects of us, to show us how we're supposed to live. The 613, flesh out, love God, love neighbor. And then the New Testament, additions to the Old Testament, 613, flesh out, love God and love neighbor. But one of the functions of the law is to show you and me that we cannot possibly keep the law and to drive us to the cross, to remind us of Good Friday, when God himself took the just punishment for your failure and my failure to do what he tells us to do. Day in and day out, our whole life long, we fail. However zealously we may try to keep the law, and so we're driven to grace. Grace, this is what makes the Christian message not law, but gospel. Good news. The righteousness that the kingdom requires. The righteousness that you must have to enter the kingdom of heaven can be received as a gift from the king himself. You cannot earn it. You cannot achieve it. But you can have it if you extend your empty hands in trust and the king's own perfect righteousness is credited to your account as if you had achieved it. By grace. A pastor in Virginia has a collection of baseball cards. His most valuable one is a card called Future Stars. He tells in the story written several years ago what it's worth, and I decided to go online and see, and it's worth more. About 300 bucks. Three players on this card. The first is Jeff Schneider. Schneider played one year of professional ball, pitched in 11 games, gave up 13 earned runs in those 11 games. The second player is Bobby Bonner, who played for four years, but only appeared in 61 games with eight RBIs and no home runs. The third future star played 21 years for the Baltimore Orioles. Some of you already know who it is. And appeared in 3,001 games. He came to bat over 11,000 times, collected over 3,100 hits, 431 home runs, 1,695 RBIs, Cal Ripken Jr. Now imagine you met Bobby Bonner. You shook your hand. Say, did you know that my baseball card is worth over $300? You'd laugh. You know this card value has nothing to do with him. Your stats are not good enough. When you are united by faith to the perfect one, 
It's as if you were good enough. All because of him. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. For me, he died. For me, he lives. And everlasting life and light he freely gives.